At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Wednesday, November 8th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and we have a special guest with us, and it is Luke Guerrero back. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Justin. You know, the more I'm on, the less special it becomes, I think. No, I disagree. I think it becomes more special every single time. How very kind of you. <laughs> I try. I try. Well, uh, we're also going to try today to help you take that next step in your financial journey, give you some actionable material as well as some education that you can take forward so that you are building a frame of mind that will guide you on the path to financial freedom. And that is a path that takes steps each and every day. And that's where to help you do. So let me remind you, the another important step uh, is uh, a format that is not just the show. Uh, it can also be a webinar, which uh, Luke and I are hosting tomorrow, November 9th, just one day away, Profit Amidst Chaos, Strategic Investing in a Recession. It's only happening online, so you do need to register, but it is free, and you can do so over at investtalk.com. We're going to touch on really what the next recession might look like, what previous recessions look like for not just the economy, but asset prices, what sectors did well, which asset classes did well, which ones did not. Okay. And this is all happening tomorrow at 1 p.m. Pacific time. So right after the market closes. And I think it's going to go a long way to helping you preserve your capital as well as find good opportunities. All right, so tell your friends about that new Invest Talk Wealth webinar coming up tomorrow and register once again at investtalk.com. All right, now on the job at hand, which is answering your questions, giving you our unbiased perspective. And we're going to talk about the market performance today. We're going to run down some show topics, but as usual, we're going to hit our first caller question now. Hey, Stephen Justin. I'm calling about JetBlue, ticker symbol JBLU. It just dropped under four dollars this week it's rebounding slightly but not too much at all just wanted to see uh, if you guys thought that this would be a good time to buy i'm not sure about the technicals but you know, personally i use JetBlue and actually love the airline so that's kind of why i'm really interested in it but you know the technicals might be absolutely um, horrible and uh that's why i wanted to get your advice let me know what you think and uh thanks for what you guys do thank you well, the technicals are horrible, although they have improved after a recent bounce from below around three fifty, and now we're at four dollars and twenty one cents. But Luke, anytime I hear about an airline, it actually reminds me of one of the first 
lessons my grandfather gave to me, which is airlines are terrible businesses. <laughs> and, you know, I've always taken that and, and maybe that just gives me a bias against the airlines. But if you look at the numbers, that's kind of true, right? Yeah, that is true, especially for, for JetBlue specifically over the past five years, their net in- income growth has been terrible relative to their competitors. But for me, what worries me the most is if you're talking about a time when consumer savings are becoming depleted and people are going to have less money to spend, that means people are also going to have less money to travel. Now, most of the savings that are still within consumers' hands are concentrated on people with higher level incomes, the type of people that don't really fly JetBlue. So any of these budget airlines, even though that's on the top end of one of the budget airlines, I don't think this is a good time to invest in. Well, and isn't JetBlue, if I remember correctly, they're trying to merge with Spirit? It's either Spirit or Frontier, but they are trying to merge. Yeah, Spirit or Frontier, I'm trying to remember. Uh, but it, it's a really, I think, trying to create the scale that the American airlines of the world have. And you just look at you know UAL, and that's struggling as well, but obviously not looking like it's on the brink of bankruptcy. That's what it looks like to me, JetBlue's on the brink of bankruptcy. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, the higher jet fuel prices certainly weighs on profitability. And then the lack of business travel. Business travel, is for, for many years, has been the bread and butter of the airline business uh, if, when it comes to profitability, right? You, you fill the rest of, of the plane, but the business class was really where you made your, your profit. But with less and less people traveling that way for business, uh, they're seeing margins shrink as well. So uh, I, I just see no reason why you want to pick this up. To me, I would stay away from the airline industry. JetBlue is one of the worst performers within the airline industry. And remember, don't think because it's trading at $4 that it's cheap. No, that's a bigger signal that it's probably closer to the brink of bankruptcy than it is uh, some huge bargain. Right, Luke? Yeah, I agree. All right. So clearly a big no, big fat no on JetBlue. All right. We have 40 minutes to cover a lot on today's show. Our main focus point looks in the story behind this headline. Three big reasons why exchange-traded funds have gone mainstream with investors. And the market share of ETFs relative to that of mutual funds has swollen to almost 30%. 30% doesn't sound like a lot, but it's come a long way. And did you know that we're in the 30th year of the first ETF? And that was SPY, the S&P ETF. And so we're going to touch on recent investor behavior investment risks within the ETF space, ETFs advantages and disadvantages, as well as active investing versus passive investing performance. We're also going to touch on a few other main points. One is in regards to WeWork. A lot of lessons to be had here. And it's not just that, oh, the co-working space is a bad business. In some ways, it's not. Uh, And it's actually in higher demand. But WeWork went bankrupt Anyway, they just filed for bankruptcy. So we're going to look back at that and what lessons can be learned. Also, China is having a bit of a breakdown in their economy and thus the social contract that they have with their citizens. And so we're going to take a little bit deep dive into the Chinese economy and where that might be headed, as well as the political divide in that country as well. All right. 
We also want to touch on a story. I know, Luke, you love this story. The Bored Ape Yacht Club. The, what would you call it? The epitome of excess within the NFT space in 2021? I think that's a good way to put it. Good summation. Well, they, it's not gone away. Although the price has gone down dramatically, the group and the NFTs have not gone away. And they threw a party in Hong Kong. And some bad things happened. And we're going to talk about what that is and why this speaks volumes about the quality of the people that are in that particular part of the uh, crypto market. All right. We're also going to get on some voice bank questions. One is on ServiceNow and the other is Halliburton. And I'll try to fit in an iTunes review question as well. But let's talk about the market today. A fairly mixed market overall, Luke. And we're, we're still kind of consolidating broadly from the run-up last week on the Fed news and the basically Fed pause. But today you had some big winners, some big looter, losers. Warner Bros. was down 19%. Lucid down 8%. Uh, you had big gainers. Like, let's see, it's some, some big ones. Actually, most of the big gainers were pretty small that you've most people have never heard of. Vinfast, your favorite, up 17% today. <laughs> um, but a very, very mixed market. Upstart was down 27%. Warby Parker down 24%. Uh, some, some pretty big moves to the downside. Clavio, a recent IPO, down 15%. Robinhood down 14%. So a lot happening in today's market. What was your distillation? Well, the S&P 500 went negative midway through the trading day, climbed back up to a 10 basis point gain. But the theme over the past couple of days has been small caps drastically underperforming the market in general. Yeah. So a lot of what was seen as a good rally over the past week was really a, <clears throat> excuse me, was really a concentrated rally. And you see that again today. And I think there's kind of this fight between two different schools of thought where some people expect a rate cut to happen soon and, and, and the peak Fed dynamic, while others point to historically, especially in the recent past, maybe the Fed turning dovish a little too early. But generally speaking, the dispersion between small cap performance and larger companies is related to the cost of running the business and the cost of financing those businesses and how much of overall debt levels have to be rolled in the next two years. Yeah, that's certainly true. I did talk uh, yesterday on the show about the debt cliff that's coming, but it's actually not really until 2026 and really in earnest 27, 28. So I think there's that's one of the reasons why the credit markets are not really blowing out. Another is the fact that the private credit markets, uh, private equity uh, type lending was where most of the riskier lending happened um, within within the economy. Um, and so you're not really seeing that credit market blow up. So I, I think there is some of that, uh, certainly, Luke. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see your end, you know, is there tax law selling that weighs in some of those smaller cap names? I think that's the potential as well. A big interesting point of today's show or today's market was that the dollar was down slightly, but gold was down, the, the oil was down. So the commodity space was down pretty nicely. Uh, and I, I, I'm interested to see if that, what, what is the catalyst for that? Is that the market pricing in maybe a weaker economy, but 
copper wasn't down and copper stocks were down. So a uh, very interesting market today. One day is not a trend, but we'll see how we do tomorrow. All right, we're going to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime, leave your questions on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via the live stream or, or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. It's happening tomorrow, 1 p.m. Pacific time. The newest Invest Talk Wealth Webinar Profit Amidst Chaos Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge, but you have to register in advance to reserve your spot. Which sectors tend to soar and which plummet during economic downturns? With the right strategies, you can safeguard your investments and also seize unique opportunities. So join Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein and Luke Guerrero of KPP Financial as they take you through the maze of mysteries involved with investing in times of recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. It's happening live, online, and free Thursday, November 9th. It's happening tomorrow. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Hey guys, how's it going, man? I just want to say I love the show. I had a question for you guys. So I'm looking at a REIT. It is called Prologis. The ticker symbol is PLD. Just wondering, wanted to get you guys' opinion on it. You know, manufacturing and stuff back, you know, stateside. Wonder if this would be a good company to get into. If you think it's a good investment, and you know, what would it be an ideal buying point for you guys? Thanks. Please let me know on the next show. Appreciate it. All right. This is. Prologis, and this is one of the largest industrial REITs that are out there. And they are mainly focused on uh, logistical facilities, so mainly warehouses, for example. They operate 1.2 billion square feet of high-quality industrial and logistical facilities across the globe. So it's, it's a large REIT, market cap nearly $100 billion, and their business boomed during the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, the stock was trading on 96, hit a high in early 2022, around 170, and now we're at 105. Funds from operation expected to be 560 this year from 517 last year and $3.31 in 2019 pre-pandemic. So... While their growth has slowed, Luke, their profitability has remained elevated. Do you think that is sustainable, though? And uh, is it hit prices that are reasonable? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that generally speaking, over, with regards to the overall REIT space, I'm more hesitant to enter there because of the amount of yield people can get elsewhere in the market. And typically people go to REITs for real estate exposure and yield. So that's kind of what's keeping me away from, from REITs right now. Yeah, I mean, all REITs are going to be a duration play in, in some way, shape or form. Obviously, this is, if you're looking at industrial space, this is well diversified. And if that's what you're trying to play is kind of overall long-term growth in industrial rents, 
then this would be a good way to do that. It's well run, uh, but if you're just trying to chase the yield, you can find better yield elsewhere. Um, so understand that cyclicality of the, of the business. All right, we're heading to a break, so give me a call now at 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk. For serious investors, it's all about achieving financial freedom. That's why the unbiased guidance offered by Steve and Justin is so valuable. The Invest Talk Anytime listener lines are open now, and Steve and Justin welcome your questions. Call 888 99Chart. 8899 chart, 889924278. Let's talk about our main focus point, and that is three reasons why exchange traded funds have gone mainstream with investors. So we're going to touch on the investment risks within ETFs, ETFs advantages and disadvantages, and active versus passive investing performance. And we are now hitting the third decade of the ETF invention. And since 1993, when SPY hit the markets, investors have poured $7.2 trillion into ETFs. And this has increased their share of the fund market compared to mutual funds from 13% all the way up to uh, 13% a decade ago to 30% today. And more than 16 million U.S. households, about 12% of them, hold e- held ETFs in 2022. Now, for everyone out there, ETFs are just a type of fund. They can hold all different types of assets, mixes of assets. Some are all equities, some are all bonds, some are a mix. Some are holding futures contracts, some are holding uh, options. It's all over the board. And last year was a year where more and more money was poured into that space. 900, nearly a trillion dollars, 900 billion dollars were pulled from mutual funds and 600 billion was put into ETFs. That's a delta of a 1.5 trillion dollars and it's not just here, it's globally. Total assets outside the US mark, market were 2.7 trillion, up fivefold from a decade ago. Now, Luke, I know you used to work for DFA. They had some mutual funds or some ETFs, correct? That is correct. I actually was involved in a conversion of a mutual fund to an ETF, which was at the time uh, and may still be the largest mutual fund conversion uh, that's ever happened. Interesting. And uh, what were some lessons that you learned about the kind of differences between the two and kind of pros and cons? Yeah, well, generally managing ETFs is easier from a portfolio Mm -hmm. management perspective, and that's because of uh, the structure of trades, right? So in a mutual fund, when a client uh, buys in or redeems out, They send cash in or they expect cash out. And so the manager has to go in and make those security trades. And what that does is it means that the fund is going to have to recognize the capital gains, which means all of the investors, not just the one who's redeeming, uh, but also the ones that are left, are going to have to live with the consequences. But in an ETF, that differs because it's more tax efficient. So what happens is they use authorized purchasers and the investor will put their order in 
it'll be routed to an authorized purchaser. The authorized purchaser will do a create or redemption basket, which is a basket of securities that is given to those authorized purchasers each day. And because they're doing direct trades on securities rather than cash, the investors that are left over don't suffer the tax consequences. And because of that, it is typically easier to manage because you're getting those securities directly in kind. And it's also cheaper to manage because the spreads on those authorized purchasing baskets are a lot cheaper. And that's why last year, there were 419 new mutual, sorry, new ETFs that were created and only 197 new mutual funds that were created. So really over double the amount of uh, ETFs versus mutual funds because of those reasons that you you spoke about. Now, mutual funds still hold 70% share within the market, right? 70-30, which continues to kind of get close to that 50-50 mark. Remember, mutual funds, they hold a large part of the 401k market. And... I don't think that's going to probably change anytime soon. And I think one the the one thing that's keeping mutual funds kind of afloat uh, is that automatically most most of the savings, the, the retirement savings people have go into 401ks and that just tends to flow into mutual funds. Now, you talked about one big reason why ETFs are, are popular is the tax efficiency. But the second main uh, reason that they are more popular is because they are simply cheaper. Um, you talked about from a management standpoint, it's easier. So it makes sense that you probably have to hire less people and and your overhead costs are less. So it, it just shows, and it shows by the average uh, fund cost. The uh, average passive mutual fund is 0.45%, so 45 basis points, more than double the 21 basis points average for an ETF. Uh, do you think that disparity kind of uh, is you think disparity will continue to persist or do you think they'll find ways to kind of close that gap? I don't necessarily think they'll find ways to close the gap because typically, and if you look at funds managed by Vanguard or managed by a BlackRock or, or, or a dimensional, those costs are generally just passing on the cost of management. And so when you create your fund in an ETF structure and the cost of management is lower, those savings are passed on to investors. And so with the overall trend of fee compression, I don't necessarily think that funds generally are charging management fees that are so large in excess of what they have to pay to manage them. Yeah. And remember, ETFs don't have things like 12B1 fees. 12B1 fees are, uh, they're, they're part of the mutual fund world. They're a legacy uh, I guess, attribute of, of the industry. Uh, if you ever bought an A share fund or sorry, not bought, were sold an A share fund from a large brokerage house, you probably paid an upfront commission or, or a load, uh, but you also are paying oftentimes 25 basis points annually in a 12B1 fee that's built into that fund cost. So that's a, another reason uh, why those fees tend to be higher on mutual funds. Um, now, the third reason that they're so popular is because most people think that ETFs are passive and uh, mutual funds are not. But the reality is there are still passive mutual funds as well. All right, we're heading into a break, but I'm ready to take your calls now at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. 
no one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's happening tomorrow, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. The newest Invest Talk Wealth Webinar Profit Amidst Chaos. Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge. Go to investtalk.com and register now. Let's go talk to Lucina in New York, and she's looking at ExxonMobil. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Uh, looking to buy it, and I was wondering if she could suggest a good buy-in price, and also that the futures, it's got a bright future with the new acquisition of Pioneer Natural Resources. Well, there's a lot of consolidation in the industry because many companies are earning are trading at very low multiples within the space and companies like Exxon have strong balance sheets. And so their ability to make an acquisition like that uh, will certainly help them long-term as long as profitability still stays relatively elevated. Now, obviously oil prices globally have to stay relatively elevated, but we've talked many times about the lack of R and D within the space. That's uh, causing a relatively tight market globally. Now, obviously, it's going to ebb and flow based on the policies, uh, both here and abroad. But overall, the trend is likely to remain higher. Um, it has pulled back. Exxon has pulled back, hit about 120 at the end of September. Now we're down to 102 and change uh, into some major support here, right around $100 per share. So, from a technical perspective, you are at the low end of the range that it's been trading at really since beginning of the year. So I have no problem picking it up uh, down here. Uh, and I, don't, I wouldn't say it's drastically undervalued, um, but and there's, and there's obviously risk with the Pioneer acquisition, but I have no problem picking it up here. Any uh, Anything to add, Luke? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Exxon sometime in in the past couple of weeks and, and Exxon is one of those companies with a strong balance sheet. It's trading at relative multiples that are in the range of where it's been over the past five years, pretty much in the middle. And so if you're looking for a company that doesn't have outsized growth potential, uh, but has a, like I said, a strong balance sheet, consistent profits and consistent dividends, then then Exxon's a good one. And within the energy space, a, di- a more diverse business than most, right? A lot of those like a, a pioneer, more of an EMP name, whereas this has downstream, businesses like refining and, and petrochemical business, et cetera. So uh, I have no problem with Exxon. It's obviously a bellwether within the space and you're getting a sell off now. And I think that is a buying opportunity if you're looking for a more diverse name. All right, let's touch a bit on the WeWork bankruptcy and they filed for bankruptcy on Monday. 
And they are trying to renegotiate about 12 to $13 billion in office lease obligations and amending about 590 different leases. And we know WeWork, they spun a, a great tale. What was it? A community adjusted EBITDA. I think that one will go down in history as one of the most ridiculous statements uh, ever said on a, on a conference call, Luke. Um, but, you know, there, there are a lot of lessons here, uh, especially because the flexible office trends are actually in their favor, but they went bankrupt nonetheless. There are a lot of lessons. I think we could do an entire podcast on the lessons of WeWork. But the biggest one for me is just because you have dynamics within your uh, within your sector, within your within your industry that are, that are in your favor, you have a tailwind. If you don't run a business well, if you don't capitalize well, if you don't realize that having long-term leases when you don't have for sure revenue is a bad idea, you're not going to be able to, ca- to capture any of the gains that you should be getting um, when those tailwinds are at your back. Yeah, and... There's a lot of parallels. You said this off air and uh, I didn't even think about this, but there's a lot of parallels to Airbnb renters, right? Who are uh, tied into the overhead of owning this piece of property and those that are, but they're, but they're completely reliant on other people leasing that out on a very short term basis. And that, and that demand can ebb and flow depending on dynamics within the economy. Right. And so <clears throat> Yes, this happened on a very large scale with WeWork, but in some instances, those that take their eye off the ball and get a little bit too aggressive in the Airbnb space can suffer similar consequences. Yeah, Matt Levine from Bloomberg said it best a couple months ago when he said Adam Newman and and WeWork did an incredible job of just lighting a fire on a massive pile of money. Yeah, obviously. And you know, this is going to impact the property markets, the commercial real estate markets within New York, San Francisco, but it's still a small uh, percentage of total office space. So I don't think it's going to be a major problem within uh, the, those, the, those uh, commercial real estate markets. Um, but what's most interesting here is that there are other companies that are successful. IWG, for example, which operates Regis and Spaces, and they're looking to actually take over a significant number of these of these defunct WeWorks. And they're actually operating them in a very different manner. They're basically uh, these asset light deals, capital light deals. And they had done 204 deals in your locations in the third quarter, and 200 of those were capital light. And basically, they are management agreements or joint ventures where they don't, they're not on the hook for, the, um, for those leases, but they take a percentage of revenue and, and, and uh, use their expertise and, and best practices to fill up that space. And in a lot of ways, it's becoming a lot like the, um, the hotel market where if the Hyatt goes out, it becomes a Marriott, for example. Um, and and that, that's what it seems like you're, you're going to, to see within this space. And so it's not just, the, like you said, having tailwinds at your back, but being able to have the right business model. And clearly, they have the wrong business model and the wrong team managing uh, this business. And going into that more capital light model, uh, especially in a world where debt costs are rising, um, that's going to be a more sustainable path. So I don't think it's a death kneel for the flexible workspace. In fact, there's a lot of tailwinds there, um, but it just shows you, uh, shows everyone the lesson that management is just as important, if not more important than the underlying dynamics within the sector. 
All right, let's, uh, let's pivot over to Invest Talk podcast review question. And this one came from iTunes, and it's Forestry Guy 1970. It says, hello, guys. I enjoy your program live on the KDOW app. I would like to get your analysis and opinion on Simon Property Group. Is this a good medium to long-term hold? Where would be a good entry point? Simon Property Group, one of the largest mall owners out there. And in some ways, they've had some headwinds. But they also own a lot of the quality malls. So your your A tier malls. Uh, most of the malls that are having trouble are your B and C tier. Uh, C's are pretty much gone now. <laughs> most of them have either uh, closed up shop or been demolished. But you know, Simon Property is the second largest re- in the United States, and it has 136 traditional malls, 70 in premium, 70 premium outlets, and 14 mills centers. Uh, Luke, obviously this is a duration play, but do you like this slice of the real estate, real estate space? You're right. It is a duration play and I don't necessarily like retail, uh, REITs in general right now. Again, we talk about this a lot in terms of the purchasing power of consumers. There's also kind of a trend, uh, especially in, in some bigger cities of a lot of these, retail companies closing some of their shops. And some of that is is due to shrinkage. Uh, some of that is due to the trends in the cities, the cost of living in the cities. And some of it is just due to people shifting their purchasing habits and the venues over which they purpose, they purchase things. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, if you're looking for a REIT, I'm not a big fan of these types of, of REITs, though this is a solid one. Yeah, within the retail space, this is definitely one of the better run uh, retail REITs and mainly because like I said there most of their malls are your your quality malls I know uh, I, I live in Southern California Orange County and there is Fashion Island there is Irvine Spectrum and those are big uh, outdoor malls that are doing very very well I think Simon Property they own South Coast Plaza I believe they do as well and that's one of the that's a world-renowned uh, mall here as well. And so those three are very good, despite the backdrop of uh, Amazon and online retailing. Uh, they are always full, and their uh, spaces are always in high demand, um, as opposed to you know kind of the B-class malls. There's one kind of near me called Mission Bayo Mall that used to be in the 90s. They remodeled it, and it was this huge, amazing thing in the late 90s, and now it's kind of a eh, whatever mall. Um, and so there's, it's kind of a mixed bag, but most of their properties are pretty good. So uh, if you want the retail space, this is a pretty good one, uh, although they do have a good amount of debt. But what I like about recently is basically since May, they've been outperforming the REIT space in general pretty strongly. So um, despite the, the rise in rates, they haven't been hit too hard. And so uh, I, don't, I don't mind it. I'll say that. All right. Let's keep things moving and pivot back to the Best Stock Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier on 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve and Justin. This is Matt from Minneapolis. I have a quick question. In my portfolio, I do um, have uh, probably 4% in just a 500 index fund. So I know that includes a lot of stocks. What I'm also considering doing is I don't have anything in dealing with uh, tech or AI or any of that stuff whatsoever. Some prices are down, but they are growing here fast. 
especially since the Fed did not raise rates. I'm considering these two stocks to maybe put 3% into for long-term hold and growth. ServiceNow, N-O-W, I believe is a ticker symbol, and Adobe, A-D-B-E, I think is that ticker symbol. I've looked over the sheets. ServiceNow seems to have a better one as far as what it pays out to the shareholders than Adobe does a little bit. And I like ServiceNow a little bit better, too, because of the people that buy its products. You have utilities, you have a lot of corporations involved, plus you have government. It seems to have healthier growth, if you want to look at it that way. I know you're going to probably say they're both a little overpriced right now. I don't know, for long-term buy and hold, would this be crazy? Let me know what you think on this idea. And what do you think of either one of these two companies? Is one better than the other? Thank you for your help. Have a good day. All right, looking at Adobe and ServiceNow, both would be considered growth companies and have had a great year after having rough 2022s with pretty much the whole space. And they've had a bounce back year. Now they're both trading at pretty high multiples once again, although their earnings continue to grow. Now Adobe is more consumer-facing, although... A lot of businesses need their uh, suite of software to, to operate. Whereas ServiceNow, that's more focused on IT, more to B2B business, and probably uh, and less fickle. Uh, I know they have one of the highest uh, or the, the lowest churn rates within the, the SaaS software space. And both of these are SaaS, SaaS companies, right? Service uh, software as a service. Uh, and neither of them pay a dividend. Both have low debt. Adobe is certainly growing less than ServiceNow, and that's why ServiceNow is trading at a, at a higher premium. Both are, are very profitable. Uh, but, Luke, after this run, do e- are either one of these relatively attractive in your mind? Well, I want to take a step back and look at the premise of the question. So the caller mentioned that he had exposure to the S&P 500 in a lot of his portfolio, and he wants to get some exposure to tech and AI. And I want to make sure he's aware that given that he does have exposure to that index, which is heavily focused on a lot of tech stocks, he does already have that exposure. So don't think think that you, you don't have exposure just because you own an index fund. Now, taking a look at both of these companies, I think ServiceNow has has better growth. They're both trading at high multiples, but ServiceNow is actually trading at a price to book that is at the lower end of its five-year range. So I think on a relative cheapness, though they're both pretty expensive and they've both had a good run-up, ServiceNow is more interesting to me because of uh, looking at some of the large tech companies and and what's been happening within the cloud software space. Google having having their or not sorry not Google Microsoft having their their earnings be bolstered by cloud cloud software. Um, So that theme is definitely something that that is interesting. Uh, But if you had to choose between the two of these, I prefer ServiceNow. Okay, yeah, because you're saying, hey, if I'm going to pay a premium to the market, I'd rather have a clear premium to the market in growth, where ServiceNow certainly has that. And Adobe, while, once again, still growing, revenues, earnings just only go one per, up 1% this year and 2% next year. So where's the... Where's the beef here, right? Where's the growth <laughs> if I'm paying up for uh, pay, paying such a high multiple? Um, so that makes sense. Now, I do think there is an interesting AI play with Adobe. Uh, they're, they're, rolling, they're rolling a lot of kind of AI tools. And does that make their software more accessible? Whereas 
you know, think of Photoshop and having to learn Photoshop is kind of a high task. But if all of a sudden now they just have a suite of AI tools that you go and subscribe to Adobe for, uh, or, or then maybe that makes them a little more accessible to the average person. So I think long term, there's some interesting uh, trends there. But I kind of agree with you uh, on, on that. Uh, I rather own service now because that lack of churn and that higher growth rate, both of them are still, I think, too expensive for my blood. But if I'm picking one or the other, definitely service now. All right, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and we have one goal here each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And that's different for everybody. You start at a different place, and we all end at a different place as well. And we all have different temperaments. And that informs your investment strategy and can also inform how well you're going to do at managing your own money. You know, are you a person who typically uh, chases returns? Are you emotional or are you fairly level-headed and down-to-earth? Typically, those that are level-headed and down-to-earth tend to outperform. But either way, we are here to help you. And our help continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. It's happening tomorrow, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. The newest Invest Talk Wealth Webinar Profit Amidst Chaos Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge. Go to investtalk.com and register now. Hi, Steve, Justin, and Luke. This is Griff from Iowa. A checkup on a stock that I inherited and have held for several years now. Halliburton, HAL. I was calling to see what you guys think about the long-term outlooks of this company and whether or not this would be a company that I should continue to reinvest dividends in, make an additional investment into the company at a particular price point, or get out and move on to something else within this sector or within a similar sector. Thank you. Appreciate all you guys. Are looking at Halliburton, one of the largest oil servicer servicing companies in the world, about a thirty-four billion dollar market cap. Earnings supposed to go up forty-one percent this year, thirteen percent next year. It has pulled back recently due to oil pulling back, and I think the big question, since you hold it, is really the opportunity cost. You're in, I think, the a good space. Oil services are doing well; they tend to benefit from. Higher oil prices and just simply more drilling activity, and you are seeing that, and that's why earnings have rebounded so dramatically. Um, but the question is, can you find something better, Luke? While this is one of the largest oil service names, is it the best in the industry? Well, one thing I like about Halliburton is over the past five years they've done a good job paying down debt. It's their debt has grown at negative fourteen percent annualized over the past five years. And most, if not all of their debt is pushed out beyond 2033. So their balance sheet's really strong. They're, they're in a good position to capitalize on those tailwinds that are affecting the, ind- the energy industry in general. Uh, I also want to add that it's difficult always to answer the question, should you buy more without knowing how much you hold, which is why it's always a good idea to, 
to go onto investstock.com and, and sign up for a portfolio review so we can we can give a better answer on on how you're allocating uh, all of your all of your funds in your portfolio. Generally speaking, I like Halliburton. I like Energy. I think it's a good company. Uh, but again, I don't know how much you have, so it's difficult to say if you should buy some more. Yeah, we own a, uh, a similar uh, competitor within the space that we think is uh, a bit better, has better uh, longer-term performance and profitability. So if you want to stay in the oil services space, I think that uh, you, you could find a bit better. Also, if you think oil prices are going higher, while oil services will do well, the EMP companies that are well-run will probably do even better. So depends how much risk you want to take, right? Uh, oil servicers tend to be a lower risk way to play the oil patch. All right, lastly, let's talk about an interesting piece of news over the weekend. I knew Luke loves this one. And this was in Hong Kong. And it was the Ape Fest event. And it targeted holders of the NFTs called the Board Ape Yacht Club. And about 2,200 people attended. And there were a lot of complaints after from on social media that people were suffering from burnt eyes of some sort, uh, basically because of lights on the stage. Luke, is this emblematic of the space in general? NFTs burned your wallets in 2022 and they burned your eyes in 2023. So I, I want to say, first and foremost, I don't like this story because people got hurt. That's always bad, of course. I like this story because it's emblematic of not just crypto, but the Ponzi economy in general. Mm -hmm. And typically what you see is companies or, or investments like this burning retail investors, uh, tricking them, if you will, by offering uh, guaranteed long-term returns. And people buy in and they spend their hard-earned money. And that, that really upsets me because that's you know the type of language I'm allowed to use on air. But I feel very strongly about it. But yeah. with this story, what you see is uh, something that was emblematic of the space broadly over the past three years. And that is, uh, you know, you had VC funds and PE funds not doing their due diligence and, and everyone getting, getting the, the short end of the stick because of it. And so when they were offering these things, they made them look as, as flashy as possible. And a lot of people got burned. And now they're making their events look really flashy. And a lot of people are actually getting burned. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's one of those things where my, people that become myopic and don't balance out the pros and the cons of any investment, they're, they're the ones that tend to get, uh, get hurt the most. Um, and it was pretty clear in the NFT space that what was the true value of an NFT? It was in the community. And, and, and if there's a way to make that community sustainable, then maybe there was some sort of value there. But uh, just having, you know, some uh, quote unquote ownership and some ledger online, some image doesn't really have much value. And it was clear then and just as clear now. And that's why sales of NFTs are down 98% since May of 2022. So uh, make sure that you're not chasing returns, not chasing some pie in the sky, uh, flashy thing and focus on the fundamentals. All right. I'm, <coughs> excuse me. I'm Justin Klein along with Luke Guerrero and this completes another invest talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google play, and be sure to join us tomorrow for our new wealth webinar, profit amidst chaos, strategic investing in a recession sign up at investtalk.com. 
Independent thinking, shared success. This is InvestTalk. Good night. InvestTalk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. 